From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, as we approach the midway point of the legislative session, a bill to create school vouchers is among the top measures in the public eye. Meanwhile, Senate Republicans have launched a formal investigation of Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis. We'll talk about all that and more with State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver. I'm Tia Mitchell in Washington. Without once mentioning former President Donald Trump by name, Governor Brian Kemp this weekend launched a series of criticisms of Trump on ABC News and in an important national forum for conservatives, particularly those who might run for president one day. We'll talk about what the governor had to say. And on this day, February 12th in 1733, Georgia was founded as an abolitionist colony. It's a good day to talk to AJC reporter Ernie Suggs about the people and events we celebrate during Black History Month. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Um, real quick note, today is the last day you can register to vote in the March 12th Georgia primary election. I know that neither the Democratic or Republican races are particularly competitive right now, but voting, it has always struck me, is not a, 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 a just a privilege. It is a responsibility. So I hope if you're not registered, you'll uh, do that uh, today. I'm Bill Nygut here with my co-host Tia Mitchell in Washington and Mary Margaret Oliver, uh, state representative, Democratic state representative from Decatur is also with us. All right, Tia and Mary Margaret, let's get to the important business right away. Tia, I know that you are a Beyonce fan through and through. You've told us that on the show before, but what about Usher last night? Yeah, and that's... I'm a Beyonce fan, but I'm not a beehive. Right. So, like, you know, <laughs> I'm not only Beyonce, even though she did drop new music last night, which um, um, country music fans can give us their reviews. But I thought Usher was amazing, you know, live, so Atlanta. He did it all, costume changes, roller skating, special guests. It was a great halftime. It was, it was a lot of fun. Mary Margaret, you're welcome to comment on Usher. But I also I loved, go go ahead, and then I'll ask you my question. I loved his outfits, and the roller skating was really fun. But also, I love Lady Gaga and mm. Taylor, and these young women that are just dominating, and Beyonce, of course, they're just dominating our uh, 
our music lives. Yeah. Usher was very cool, though. Um, you know, I uh, don't particularly like the NFL. I don't like the corporate nature of it. I've said this on the show before. I don't like the incredible violence. But it's very hard not to watch Patrick Mahomes and recognize you were watching an extraordinary athlete. And that was thrilling. But Mary Margaret, I want to ask you a different question. What is, I, I understand the conspiracy theories about Taylor Swift, which are absurd. But beyond the conspiracy theories, she is getting criticized all over social media for so many things. What the heck is wrong with people? This is an incredibly talented young artist a great songwriter and performer. Why can't people just, in, didn't, wasn't music the thing that used to bring us all together, Mary Margaret? I remember it bringing us together, but it's a different world and uh, she has power. She has so much power. And obviously she has power not only financially and dominating the media, but she has power politically. So her success is dangerous to many folks that are afraid of super powerful people. All right, let's move on. Thank you for that. We had to get that out of the way. It was really exciting to uh, watch uh, last night uh, the Super Bowl, I thought, and I'm glad you all agreed with that. Um, let's get down, to you to the fact that we're about to hit midpoint in the legislature uh, this session, and we've asked Mary Margaret to join us to uh, talk about her perspective on some of the important bills. Um Tia, one of the things that Mary Margaret mentioned to both of us before we went on the air was her concern about a bill that's going to expand cash bail to new uh, crimes. Um, and it's something that a lot of Democrats are worried about, Tia. Yeah. And I mean, I want to let uh, Representative Oliver talk about it, but just to give it a bit of a background and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Representative Oliver, but it's going to add new crimes, if you will, where bail would be required, where it would give courts less flexibility. And on one hand, it's seen as tough on crime and making sure that people are required to pay cash bail for certain crimes. But again, those who are concerned about people being put in jail for relatively low level offenses, they think that cash bail is a barrier that keeps more people locked up um, because they're poor. Is that the right way to frame this conversation? Very accurate. Very accurate. Before I got into the legislature, I was a magistrate court judge in DeKalb County most Friday nights for a couple, several years, setting bails, setting bonds. And then I was on the Criminal Justice Reform Commission in the first year. And now I'm facing this this backlash. This It's really a message bill, but it's a message bill about how we're tough on crime that's creating, will create enormous amount of pain, unnecessary pain, unnecessary stress on our jail institutions, which are in terrible shape, as if you read anything in the news. I use this example, and I tried to ask this question when the bill came before the House and wasn't allowed to. Georgia's one of three states that prosecutes 17-year-olds, those are minors, as adults for all criminal offenses. There are about 5,500 to 6,017-year-olds arrested every year, and two-thirds of those are misdemeanors. The question I wanted to ask is, will the sponsor of this bill pay the bond for a 17-year-old foster care child? Mm -hmm. 
who's in jail? Or does he want the uh, foster care parent to pay that bail? You think about the teenagers that don't have seven. I'll just use 17-year-olds as an example, but it could be any young person never been arrested for anything, is in some stupid teenager, young person circumstance where he's charged, overcharged with something perhaps, he or she, sitting in jail for weeks or months. Nothing is going to destroy an educational opportunity to finish high school or finish the 10th grade, whatever, than sitting in jail. And I have seen so many of those teenagers sit in jail because nobody's there to pay it. Mary child exhibit a i apologize for interrupting um you already alluded to it this is part of the larger get tough on crime agenda that republicans in the legislature have this session and last as well which is a reversal of what you watched unfold when uh, governor nathan deal was in office governor deal wanted to try to reduce the prison population um, he tried to find alternatives to incarceration, especially for minor crimes. So the larger question is, beyond just cash bail, what is going on with um, the Republicans in the Kemp administration as opposed to what Nathan Deal put in place? Well, let's go back to Zell Miller. He was a tough mm-hmm. on crime. We have this swing going back and forth. Nathan Deal was a lawyer who had invested substantial parts of his professional life in the criminal justice. He'd former former ADA. He was assistant district attorney. He was my he was my first juvenile court judge that I appeared before in Hall County. He was a student of many issues, and one of them was the disaster of a of a of a jail happening, whether it's prosecuted or not, for young people and the way they clog up our institutions, costing enormous amount of money. I think that it's always been true that it's politically opportunist to say, I'm tough on crime, I'm a Republican, I'm tough on crime, and you Democrats are not. Uh, That's, of course, just a message. And I wonder, this is the thing I ask myself, waste my time and distract myself. These sponsors come to these well and make these speeches about tough on crime. I wonder if any of them have ever been to a jail, have ever really been to that church, get a friend out, get a family member out. Do they know anything about incarceration and what the cost is to the person and what the cost is to the taxpayer? Um, Tia, let me ask another uh, question to Mary Margaret, and then you please jump in with uh, what you want to talk about next. But Mary Margaret, it looks like school vouchers are have momentum this session that they did not really have last year. You had more than a dozen Republicans who voted against uh, allowing the state to give out uh, vouchers for private education. This year, you've got Governor Kemp jumping on this and saying he'll support it from the very start. It is this, what's your first opinion about whether this is actually likely to pass out when you talk to your colleagues, both Democrats and Republicans, and what's your take on school vouchers? It's $250 million that have to go to private schools out of the public school system. And the 16 Republicans, I think the number is 16, mm-hmm. that um, voted against the voucher bill, against the president pro tem, Jan Jones, who it's, it's, it's think, I think it's her issue, that she brought it to the floor when she didn't have the votes last year. And you see it hadn't come to the floor yet again this year. So I wonder if they can get the votes. The rural legislators out there whose public school system is really, really struggling without a tax base and have no private schools, 
I mean, they have few, if any, private schools. Uh, I wonder how many votes she can switch. And Kemp was for it last year. Kemp's for it this year. Again, it's um, it's a little bit of a it, it's a serious bill because it's serious money. And I hope those 16 Republicans stay in the no category. Just one really quick uh, item about that, though. Kemp didn't declare himself for that bill until very, very late in the session. So that may be different than where he's headed this year. Tia? I wanted to ask, first of all, as someone who's not as plugged into the state legislature, when is crossover day? Just so we know, like, at what point does legislation need to move in one chamber or another? It's uh, two weeks. I think it's the 28th is the last crossover day. It's, it's day 28 of the General Assembly, mm-hmm. which is a little old, young, a little bit sooner than it has been. So we are our committee meetings are becoming much more intense right now. We are isolating the bills. We're lining up the bills that are going to be have to pass bills. And I'm working on several of those. And one of them particularly that is a lot of discussion in the back room. But where's the bill? is what I'm not, I'm not calling Medicaid expansion anymore. I'm calling it something else, but an expansion of coverage for Georgia uninsured citizens. Where's well, that bit? What, what are you calling it? I'm calling it, I'm calling it several things. I'm calling it Pathways <laughs> Plus. I'm calling it Peach Care for Adults. I'm calling uh, Save the Taxpayer Money. Uh, uh, there's several names that I'm trying not to use the word Medicaid expansion because that seems to upset some few people. Um, but but we, we, when, when you talk about Pathways Plus, you're talking about the waiver that Governor Kemp got to expand Medicaid uh, in a limited way to those who were willing to go to work or serve in some volunteer capacity with uh, organizations out there. And, and Mary Margaret, we know that at, at this point, um, very few people have agreed to that. The governor and his people have now sued uh, the Biden administration over this, in part because um, they believe that the slow walking of the uh, waiver after Trump had approved it uh, had took the sale, the steam out of, uh, of some of all that. So what's your take on that? I think there's a window of opportunity. And each day that goes by, that window of opportunity becomes more of focus and more intense and maybe narrower. But the forfeiture of $9 billion with basically no Georgia taxpayer contribution having to be made and the forfeiture of one to two, two plus billion dollars a year of federal taxpayer money that Georgia has sent to Washington that's now going to uh, 40 other states and not to Georgia is an intense conversation. And I'm looking for the bill. Where's the bill? Well, so. Well, just to ask, who's in charge of bringing the bill? I mean, because Governor Kemp, to me, has indicated he doesn't want to go this way yet. He's still fighting for his own um, more limited Medicaid expansion with the work requirements and things like that. It just seems to be the incentive for Republicans who we know controls the General Assembly to actually move forward with this kind of true Medicaid expansion, even if you call it something else, doesn't seem to be there. So who's going to bring a bill to the floor? The appropriations chair in the Senate is a Southeast Georgia gentleman. The Speaker of the House is a Southeast Georgia gentleman. The appropriations chair in the House is a Dublin. They're, they're rural legislators, and they are hearing from their constituents. 
in a way that I believe is they have to listen to them. Uh, there's just too much money on the table that will strengthen a variety of different aspects of our healthcare system. The, um, the Pathways program has obviously not been successful, but I have been studying the Arkansas waiver process. I mean, they, I mean, I think Pathways now has two, 3,000 people signed up with well, the Arkansas program uh, signed up two, 3,000 day one. Mm-hmm. And I think that in our state, we have to make some changes. We know our healthcare system does not extend equity to all Georgia citizens who pay taxes and who are working. You know, the the gap between 100% of poverty and 138% poverty, those are working people. They just don't make enough money or they're not in an employment job where insurance is provided. It's a big gap in our services. And I believe that the rural legislator Republican leaders are listening to their local hospital folks. Mary Margaret, when we talk about the Arkansas model, I always think it's important to explain to our listeners what that model is. What Arkansas did was to uh, keep the Obamacare exchanges in place so people with who wanted to sign up would sign up through the exchange, but they would be subsidized by the federal money that comes into the state. So it was sort of an interesting compromise is the way I look at it, Mary Margaret, that um, didn't turn it all over to the state government to deal with in some way. And and I think that's one of the reasons it's appealing to even some Republicans here in Georgia, right? It's appealing. It's a private insurance plan. Yes. It's a commercial private insurance plan. We are subsidizing people's private insurance. And what that means is a practical matter and a very significant practical provider, if you're a provider out there, is that the commercial reimbursement rates under insurance is greater than the Medicaid reimbursement rates. So there's some advantages of the Arkansas plan. It might not be the most efficient. It, it gives a portion of our tax money to insurance agents. But I can live with all that. Mm-hmm. If I mean, I, I think it is a relative important discussion that reflects Georgia's economy, reflects Georgia's uh, leadership, and gives an opportunity to cover hundreds of thousands of more people with decent insurance. So that's an important discussion. Vouchers is an important discussion. Bail is an important discussion. We're teeing up some important issues now and having serious work and discussions. We're talking to State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, Democrat in the state legislature, um, who often she has her own view on things, not always necessarily uh, in line with all Democrats in the legislature. And I just want to point out that we're hearing her view today. Tomorrow, State Senator Jason Anavatarte, a Republican leader in the legislature, will be on to talk about his perspective on what's happening in the legislature. Tia, let's move while we've got Mary Margaret here to another uh, issue. This weekend, Governor Kemp was very outspoken, I, in some ways I think more outspoken than he has been even before, in his criticism of Donald Trump, whose name never once escaped his lips. But on ABC's uh, uh, This Week, he said, uh, when asked whether Donald Trump should uh, uh, have a right to immunity from prosecution, he said, quote, no one is above the law. He criticized Trump, again, without naming him, for mocking Nikki Haley's husband, who is an active service member. Um, And he, uh, at a big conference of conservatives, which is often a showcase for people who are going to eventually run for president, 
um, he once again said, we've got to focus on the future. We've got to stop talking about the 2020 election being rigged. Clearly another shot at Donald Trump. Tia? Yeah, and I felt it was so interesting as I was uh, reading up on uh, Governor Kemp's remarks. Of course, our Greg Bluestein wrote a lot about it and looking back on what he said. It seems to be that Governor Kemp is trying the lane of appealing to conservatives on policy, but also trying to say that, you know, Donald Trump is not the right leader for these conservative policies. And in that way, he's sounding a lot like Nikki Haley, but I want to get your thoughts about this, Representative Oliver, because that lane isn't really working out much for Nikki Haley. She's struggling to compete with Trump with the message of we can be conservative without being, you know, as problematic in these various different ways that people consider Trump problematic. So what is the lane for someone, in your opinion, like a Governor Kemp or a Nikki Haley? Governor Kemp is successful in creating for himself a national platform. Uh, his policies are, are not my policies, but I have to tip my hat to the success he has created around his own brand, his own way of talking about not using the name Donald Trump, but coming from a state where uh, we have two Democratic U.S. senators that changed the entire dynamic of the U.S. Senate, he has consistently been a national voice that sounds moderate without being anti-Trump. And I watched him yesterday on Meet the Press because I was very interested in how he would frame the issues. And he framed them in a conservative way. He referred to close the dang border. You know, that kind of language came out of his mouth. But at the same time, he's very clear and been consistent, I think, for a good while now. We can't look back. We don't have a rearview mirror. If you're arguing about two 80-year-olds, uh, whether which one of them is is less appealing, then you're going to lose the election. I think that's good sound advice. And he has successfully dodged, very successfully dodged, beating David Perdue by a good, you know, many, many, many votes. He's dodged the penalty of sounding in ways like an anti-Trumper. My hat's off to him. I think it's probably more good than bad for Georgia that he has that national voice. I'm just curious, what is his goal? Well, I, that's right. I mean, there are a lot of people who expect him to look at, at maybe running for president uh, in 2028. We don't know anything about whether that's really his intention. He continues to raise enormous amounts of money in his leadership fund, as you well know, Mary Margaret. We've got time for one more question that I'd love to get to. Um, the state Senate now has begun the process of investigating Fonnie Willis. They actually have given themselves subpoena power. Uh, to bring her in, Nathan Wade in. And by the way, today, Judge Scott McAfee in Fulton County Superior Court is going to hear on whether, uh, from uh, both sides on whether Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade have to honor subpoenas to appear before him in a, in a, a, a hearing on Thursday, which will determine whether there's any reason why Fonnie Willis should be dismissed from the case because of her relationship with Nathan Wade. Just weigh in on that whole scope of things. Should the state Senate have this power? No. <laughs> there are many people in the General Assembly of enormous talent who have 
past professional skills developed as as assistant district attorneys like uh, like Nathan Deal did. But basically, we are not an entity that's heavily staffed. We are a citizen legislature. Putting somebody under oath and granting the power of a subpoena to produce documents, to produce formal discovery kind of things, is not within the skill set of the average General Assembly member. I am, um, you know, been here a long time, and I've served on both sides of the rotunda. I've served the Senate and the House. The idea of the Georgia General Assembly issuing subpoenas, putting people under oath, and having a quote-unquote investigation is simply not a good idea in my view. Mary Margaret Oliver, it's always a pleasure to have you with us. I appreciate, uh, and I know Tia does too. Your yes, we do. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Mary Margaret, for being with us uh, today. Uh, we're going to take our first break of the show right now. When we come back, we'll be joined by our colleague, Ernie Suggs, who every February uh, takes a leadership role in coverage of Black History Month. And I want to know, Tia, if Ernie learns something new and noteworthy about uh, black achievements every year from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from the AJC politics team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters to sign up. That's AJC.com newsletters. Tia, we're almost halfway through. Uh, Black History Month. Um, this is the first year that I've been uh, I've joined the AJC to watch coverage of Black History Month from the inside. And Tia, I know that our next guest, the inimitable Ernie Suggs, is a key part every year of Black History Month. Yes, let me tell you guys to our listeners, you might see the daily Black History Month content. That's been going on for years. Ernie can tell us how many years, but behind the scenes, Ernie is so passionate. He harasses us all for <laughs> ideas months in advance. And then we get voluntold our assignments. And no, I'm joking. But no, this really is a labor of love on top of everything Ernie already does. And how many years has this been going on, Ernie? Uh, we are. Oh, thank you all very much for having me. But we're in the ninth year right now. Nine years. years. So next year we're going to blow it out for 10 years. But he has managed for nine years not to repeat mm -hmm. and to find so many people or organizations or ideas to showcase Every day, every day, something different during Black History Month, often with a Georgia angle and not to repeat over nine years is astounding. It's really great work that you do, Ernie, on this. And that's why well, we're, thank you. we're so glad to have you here. Thanks for taking the time to be with us, Ernie. Oh, of course. Whenever you guys call, I'll be there. But I, I really appreciate your kind words. Uh, like you said, Tia, this is a labor of love, not just for me, but as you said, the whole new the whole staff gets involved. Everyone is invested in it, uh, which is really, really good. And uh, we just have a good time telling stories about Atlanta, telling stories about Georgia, and most importantly, telling stories about Black culture and Black history. So, Ernie, 
would you say is 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 there ever a year in these nine years where something doesn't strike you that you hadn't thought about, known about? Every year it strikes seems to me you are learning new things about the achievements of black people in Georgia, in the United States, whether they are in uh, leadership roles in in politics or in services, uh, nonprofits, artists, and the like. What what's striking you so far this year? Uh, well, this year, I mean, like you said, we try to be unique in our coverage. We try not to be obvious. Like you will never see a you will never see a story about who Martin Luther King Jr. is or who John Lewis is because these are these are kind of obvious stories. But we'll get behind deeper stories. So over the last nine years, we've been able to write stories about, and you said that there's always something new. Tia said there's always something new. So aside from people and places and events, we also talk about concepts. Like we did stories about double consciousness. We did stories about the tragic mulatto, the talented 10th, what all that means, what uh, what the souls of black folks mean. Uh, this year, for example, um, we've gone into, over the last three years, we followed the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History to use their theme. So the first year we used um, health and wellness, which is the year we came out of COVID, which is very timely. Last year we used resistance, which is also very timely coming out of George Floyd. This year, the theme is arts and entertainment. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, African-Americans have a very, very rich culture of arts and entertainment in this country. So we were able to get a lot of stories about, you know, Matawilda Dobbs, you know, um, Maynard Jackson's aunt, who's a great opera singer, mm -hmm. graffiti. Uh, we revisited the life of the complicated life of Hattie McDaniel. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a profile on Tina Ansa, who's the first black female to work at the Atlanta Constitution. So I'm to answer your question, I'm always learning something every year. And I think that's the beauty and joy of the whole thing. Because if I'm learning it, I think that the readers are going to enjoy it and learn something as well. And Ernie, what I like about this year is because the focus on Black arts and entertainment but I feel like there have been a lot of contemporary examples. So we're not just talking about history, people, you know, from long ago who may have already passed away. But you're featuring people who still dwell among us, you know, and Tina McElroy Ansa was, mm -hmm. you know, that's an author that I grew up reading. And um, to me, that is to kind of make the relationship that... Yes, we're talking about history, but there are people making history even today and who are still with us today that we can celebrate. Um, I also wanted to note, uh, make note that there's intersectionality in this where like it's um, you. I think wasn't it about the um, you've talked about like. Queen of Salsa, and mm -hmm. she's an Afro-Latina. And to me, it's important to talk about Celia Cruz because um, it brings in that conversation about the diversity of, of Black people beyond just kind of um, American descendants of slaves, if you will, in the diaspora. Yeah, and, that go and that goes to the diversity of the staff. As well, you know, as you said, this is a voluntary thing. And we have a great young reporter named Latoro Grinspan, who every year for Black History Month, I make sure we make sure that he writes something about the Afro-Latino community. Last year it was about the Haitian Revolution. This year is about Celia Cruz. And you wonder, your readers may wonder why are we writing about Celia Cruz? Well, Celia Cruz's niece is on the um, South Fulton Board of Commissioners. So we have that local connection, but also Celia Cruz as a Cuban, as a Black Cuban. Um, 
is a very, very important part of our overall diaspora of our own culture. So these are the kind of stories. We have a story about Othello and about how, you know, Shakespeare wrote this great play about a black, uh, about a black king. And for years and centuries, he was always played by white people. So we kind of challenge that aspect of that, of, of, of challenging how Othello is looked at. Um, so we've had some really, really good stories. Yesterday's story on Blind Willie, today's story on Edwin Moses, which was told by our intern, uh, Ozzie Birdsell, who was a student at Morehouse College. So it talks about the 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 partnership or the relationship that Morehouse College has and continues to have. So we've had some really, really fun stories this year. You know, and right? stories that you're not going to know uh, unless you read the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I, I apologize for interrupting there. You know, oh, I was noodling around last week for a column for this week. And in fact, it's in the e-paper today. Um, and what I noticed, I, I was looking at the Georgia Historical Societies this day, today in Georgia history, and I noticed that there are a remarkable number of events that just coincidentally tell the arc of the story of African Americans in Georgia that just happened to fall during Black History Month. And not all of them are good. Not all of them are uh, motive, are, are, are animated directly by Black Georgians. But as a starting point, Ernie... Today, in 1733, February 12th, is the date that James Oglethorpe founded, chartered the Georgia colony. And I don't think many people realize he founded mm. it as an abolitionist colony, which is kind of oh. remarkable when you think about what happened within 20 years after that, when slavery became ubiquitous across the state. Yeah, I did that, not know that. Yeah, yeah, that was I didn't know that either till I read Bill's column. And, you know, it didn't like Bill noted, it didn't last long. Um, but the fact that Georgia started out as the only one of the 13 colonies that in the charter prohibited slavery, it was written into the documents. And I did think that was interesting, especially given all the things we know that happened after not just the introductory of slavery, introduction of slavery into Georgia, but how hard Georgia powers that be fought to keep the institution of slavery, how hard they worked after slavery was abolished to keep the institutions of Jim Crow and how hard they fought to keep the institution of segregation. And um, they probably didn't either didn't know the history or something they didn't want to acknowledge. I didn't know this until Michael Thurman, the DeKalb County CEO, who's a frequent uh, participant on Politically Georgia, just released a book on uh, on James Oglethorpe. And it was when it, where I first learned that uh, Georgia had been founded at, as an abolitionist colony. So, Ernie, um, obviously the stories that you curate for Black mm -hmm. History Month give um, Black Georgians uh, the, the ability to see the sweep of all that has been accomplished uh, by black Georgians and, and others. What do you think um, Black History Month does for white people like me? What do you hope I'll take away from reading all of these stories? Well, I mean, I think, you know, and I read your wonderful column, I think that you, white people like yourself, um, and you're, you know, I think that what all readers and what all people should see is that America and this country was built in large part because of the contributions of black people, whether it's um, in the sciences, whether it's in labor, whether it's in education, whether it's the arts, as we're 
looking at now. So what I hope to always do is just kind of remind people and show people in a deeper, um, more analytical way, just how important we are and, or, and how important our roles are. You mentioned um, Michael Thurman's um, book. He sent me a note uh, after we did a story about slave narratives, about how he used slave narratives to help him write his book about Oglethorpe. And if you look at slave narratives, you you know, a lot of 99 percent of us have probably never read or heard of a slave narrative. Mm. But the slave narratives are the foundation, I argue, in that story of black literature. So that's the foundation of Alice Walker and Toni Morrison, which goes into the foundation of what Spike Lee and, and, and Tyler Perry are doing in terms of creating art in a written and visual world. So all of this kind of all connects. And I think that if, if, if we leave in, on March 1st, if nothing else, if I've taught one person something about something that they didn't know about, then that's going to be a beautiful thing. And I would also argue, I mean, it's kind of become a cliche now, but it's true that Black history is American history. Mm -hmm. For example, yeah. we just started talking about the fact that Georgia as a colony was founded as an abolitionist colony where Oglethorpe did not envision the Institute of Slavery. Well, over history, that hasn't been the focus, that hasn't been taught. And again, mm -hmm. we've talked about part of the reason is likely because those who ran that colony and later that state didn't want to acknowledge that abolition, those abolitionist origins. It didn't serve them as they imposed slavery. It didn't serve them as they imposed trying to keep black people from having full political power um, and being treated as equals. And so the fact that we're now teaching people through our black history coverage, through columns and things is we're helping them understand a fuller, more accurate picture of American history by ensuring that the contributions of Black people or the decisions that were made and how they affect Black people are also taught. So one of the things that I hope that, you know, people who are non-Black, whether you're white or Latino or Asian, it's not like, oh, I'm learning about Black people. No, by learning about Black people, we are learning more about the overall human experience and American experience. Excellent point. Yeah, yeah, that's a wonderful point. Um, so, Ernie, you talk about artists, entertainers uh, who are being mm -hmm. celebrated this month. Uh, you mentioned Alice Walker last week, February 9th, was her birthday. Mm -hmm. uh, Alice Walker, the first African-American woman to be awarded a Pulitzer Prize in fiction, which is obviously worth celebrating. And we know Color Purple has gone on to have a remarkable life in film mm -hmm. and on stage. And right now there's a, a new production, new movie of uh, uh, Color Purple that many people w went out to see. But I also want to point out, Ernie, because um, it relates to a very close friend of my family's. February okay. 4th was the anniversary of the death of Ossie Davis. Ossie oh, Davis, yeah, one yeah. of the great, great actors, uh, along with his wife, Ruby D. Ossie Davis was born and grew up in Clinch County. And among his many achievements, he wrote a remarkable play called Pearly Victorious, yes, which is a, a comedy, a comedy and a serious play about race in the South. And um, our good friend Kenny Leon just did a production of Pearly Victorious um, on Broadway to great acclaim. And I can't help but think 
of people like Kenny, who's been a friend of my family, to my wife, my daughter, my son, and I for many, many years. He's one of the great uh, 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 artists advancing the importance of black culture. Mm -hmm. And I would, you bring up Pearly Victorious. I would encourage all of your listeners to uh, go to YouTube and find that movie by Ozzie Davis and just listen to his dialogue or his monologue toward the end. It's one of the amazing pieces of of black culture I've ever, I've ever seen. So I I thank you for bringing him up. Um, All right. Um, Give us some last words before we have to leave. Yeah, uh, tell us, give us a preview. We're yeah. about halfway yeah. through the month. Yep. Um, I don't, I don't know. You don't want to spoil surprises, but no, what no. else could we look forward? No, we to? have some. No, I want to. I, I do want to encourage people to read. Um, <laughs> as you can, you can go to AJC.com, our Black History page. Uh, today we had a story about Edwin Moses. Tomorrow we have a fascinating story. And again, this is one of these things that no one knew about. I've lived in Atlanta for 27 years, and I've never known about this. But there was Marta at a time had a special secret route that they didn't um, 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 advertise that was just for maids to send black and Hispanic maids to rich white neighborhoods to service their homes. And this route just stopped being run in 2000. So you're talking about modern, you talk about the whole thing about modern history. So this is an example of something that none of us have ever even heard about. Well, that's, uh, next, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, next Sunday, we have an amazing story about Bo Emerson, who um, I'm sure all of you love his work. Mm-hmm. He's doing a story about Mount Rushmore. And we say, well, what about Mount Rushmore? Well, at the, um, and if you watch the show, the movie, The South Got Something to Say, which was our documentary, you notice that one of the, one of the commentators mentioned James Brown, Little Richard, Otis Redding, and um, and Ray Charles as the Mount Rushmore of Georgia music and Mount Rushmore of soul music. All of those men are from Georgia. So we have a fascinating story about Bo Emerson talking about their connections, their influence, and about how how they rose to fame right here out of poverty. Three of them, are, uh, three of whom are, are from Macon, Georgia. Uh, this is the 50th anniversary of WCLK, which is a very you know significant radio station. Um, so we have a lot of, you know, we've got stories about fashion. We got stories about one of the first, uh, motorcycle groups in the turn of the last century, uh, Hubbard Pryor, who was a, um, a, a former slave who escaped to join the union army and fought against the Confederates who was recaptured by the Confederates and re-enslaved. So we have a really, really, really rich, um, month ahead, or we have a rich, you know, rest of the month to fill. So we got some really great stuff. Ernie, before we leave, well, we got, mm-hmm. can't not ask you, given your involvement in producing The South Got Something to Say about the history of hip-hop in Georgia, mm-hmm. uh, what did you think about Usher last night? <laughs> I thought he was great. I thought he really, really represented Atlanta very well. Uh, he, you know, uh, he has a lot of hits, and he crammed a lot of hits in it. And, you know, it was good to see Ludacris. It was good to see Lil John. It was good to see uh, Jermaine Dupree. Uh, so I thought it was a fantastic representation of Atlanta. Uh, he did us very well. I'm not sure. You know, I'm a huge Prince fan. And when you can go and do halftime show and sing Purple Rain and it rains. With the fam, you marching 100, backing <laughs> yeah. you up. It's it's hard to beat that. But I think you never will really be beat it. Yeah. <laughs> Ernie Suggs, I'm really grateful to you for spending some time with us today. I, As I said, I'm still a relatively newcomer to the AJC staff, but I'm very proud to be part of a staff that has uh, the kind of uh, work you do every year for well, Black History Month and what you do way beyond Black History Month as well. So thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thank Ernie. you for having us. And Tia, we look forward to having your story next year. 
<laughs> I'll do my best. You know, you know, it always catches me at a, at a crazy time. But I do. I've done stories in the past. All right. Yeah, we'll yeah. let you two hash that out <laughs> off the air. We've got to get to another break. Back with more right. on the AJC's Politically Georgia after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. This podcast is part of the mission of the AJC, to be the most essential and engaging source of news for the people of Atlanta, of Georgia, and the South. Stay up to date every day on breaking news, in-depth investigations, politics, sports, entertainment, food and dining, and so much more by becoming a subscriber to the AJC. Go to AJC.com start for a special offer, and you can unlock hundreds of original articles published daily at AJC.com and the new AJC mobile app. That's AJC.com slash start. Boy, if you look at the weather radar, the whole state of Georgia is caught up in a rainstorm. I hope all of you out there, if you're listening to the show live, are being careful as you get around in everywhere from far south Georgia all the way up into the mountains. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast, I hope by now you've had a chance to dry out. Uh, our My drive-in today was uh, treacherous, to say the least. Uh, we're back with more on uh, Politically Georgia. My partner, Tia Mitchell, uh, joins me today. And Tia, there is never really a slow day on your beat anymore. Uh, the, the hill is just always buzzing in one way or another. And right now... What you're looking at is the Senate is considering a vote on whether or not to give funding to Ukraine and Israel, separate from all of the other issues that it has been caught up with, border security and the like. And they had a rare Sunday procedural vote on this, yes? Yes, some observers noted that actually Senator John Ossoff, our, one of our Georgia senators, was the unlucky guy who had to preside over the Senate in, during the Super Bowl. So I'm wondering if he kind of had his cell phone hidden on his lap so he could watch a, a little bit or on his laptop quietly. But he was in the Senate chambers um, while the game kicked off. The Senate did take a... Um, they took a couple procedural votes over the weekend. They've got a couple more procedural votes lined up for today. But without agreement from Republicans, they can't move quickly, which is why it's kind of lingering. They have the votes to pass it. They have the votes to break a filibuster even. But they... um you need unanimous mm -hmm. kind of support to move quickly in the Senate, and yeah. they don't have that. Yeah, you need unanimous consent to get it on the floor right away. Yep. Yeah, and I would say one of the things that I um, 
want to note is that there's a lot in the bill. It does not include some of the more controversial border policy changes, but there is a lot still in there. Um, And it's, of course, billions of dollars, mainly for Israel and Ukraine are the biggest parts in it. But there's some stuff about military readiness in there. Domestically, there's some stuff for Thai, money for Taiwan that's in there, knowing that there are some possible threats to um, from China on there. So um there's there's a lot in the bill that, quite frankly, has bipartisan support. But ironically, the reason why Republicans, some Republicans oppose it is because it doesn't include border security provisions. But they also oppose the bill that included border <laughs> security provisions with the foreign aid. Yeah, so yeah. it's a little mind bending. So, T, I think the soonest under regular order that they can get this bill to the floor is, I believe it's Thursday, the end of the week, I believe. I think it's Wednesday-ish, Wednesday. okay. um, but there's talks about, you know, procedurally, any one senator can really cause havoc. So, again, there are some senators that want to try to stretch it out even past then. I will note the Senate was not supposed to be in session past Friday. Really, mm-hmm. I think in an ideal world, they would have wanted to leave on Thursday, And the fact that but they definitely weren't supposed to be here this week. And so every day that they're in session this week represents a change of plans. They are what we call CODELs, congressional delegations, where members during the recess take trips internationally. Well, those who had CODELs lined up for the week have some decisions to make. For example, you might have had some events you planned back in in your home state, for example, or you might have had your own personal um, trips that you plan thinking you would be off work this week. So that's incentive for them to get moving. But right now we're looking at midweek. Well, of course, the, the question becomes what happens when this bill moves to the House, where right. more and more Republicans are opposing, following Donald Trump's lead, aid to Ukraine. Um, there's been this convergence of events recently, I think, that put more pressure on Republicans to oppose the Ukraine portion of that bill at the very least. Um, Number one, uh, you have Tucker Carlson going to Moscow to interview Vladimir Putin and basically do a softball interview that suggested that Putin has a right to some territory in Ukraine, which I think a great many uh, people in the public policy arena would uh, suggest is incorrect. You've got Donald Trump. Uh, having uh, said, recounting a conversation he says he had with the leader of a NATO country while he was president in which he said, if you're not going to pay your full share, your 2%, uh, let Russia uh, come invade you, more power uh, to them. So there are all these things that are are kind of firing up around this uh, bill if it does get to the House, especially in terms of Ukraine. Right. And I think the bill has <clears throat> has the votes to pass in the House. It but does. Really? The question is, the question is, will the Republicans who control the floor in the House let it come up for a vote? That's really the question, even if they had to do it under what we call suspension of the rules, which is the fast tracking mechanism that a lot of bills are coming through the House that way because the regular order through the Rules Committee, the Rules Committee 
Kevin McCarthy put too many far right members on the rules committee. So they Republicans can't do it that way these days. So they have to do it under suspension of the rules, which requires two thirds vote, which means it requires the support of Democrats. Um, but you still have to put it on the calendar in that way. The question is, what will Speaker Johnson do? Um, he's made statements indicating he's not opposed to funding for Ukraine. But again, there are a lot of Republicans that do not want money for Ukraine under any circumstances. And we know they're going to be very ticked off. I think I'm right that Marjorie Taylor Greene is one of them. Yes, Yes, Marjorie Taylor Greene is definitely one of them. And then there are others. I'm thinking of like the Andrew Clydes of the world who aren't as steadfast as Marjorie Taylor Greene, but probably are a little bit more cautious about money for Ukraine and probably wouldn't like Kevin McCarthy fast tracking it. We're running out of time, but one other quick note. Um, Are you also expecting that Republicans will once again take up the impeachment of uh, the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas? Yes. Yes. Um, Steve Scalise, who was undergoing treatment for cancer, is supposed to be back this week. The House probably might try on Wednesday to take another vote on impeaching Mayorkas. And um, given Scalise coming back and if all nothing else changes, it would pass this time. And I think every Republican member of the Georgia delegation supports the measure to impeach Mayorkas. Have I got that right? Yes. Um, it was pretty party line um, vote right. then. OK, Tia, we are out of time. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation with Mary Margaret Oliver and Ernie Suggs today. And it's always a pleasure to get to uh, share a show with you. Um, uh, we, we do have just enough time today to remind you that if you want to ask us a question, stump the band, so to speak, uh, you can call us anytime, day or night at 404-526-2527. That's our listener mailbag phone line. We would love to take on your questions, which we do on this show every Friday. So send us your questions, 404 404- 526-2527. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. And of course, you can follow Politically Georgia as you are right now on your favorite podcast app, where you'll hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor. 
But I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com.